Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. The audience is drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. The Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, will delve into this topic. I'm Nancy Karabjanian. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Now we join our A Matter of Facts podcast host, Nancy Karabjanian. Thanks for joining us again on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm Tom Burns sitting in for Nancy Karabjanian. Fake news. The term itself has been around for some time, but you barely heard it a few years ago. Now you hear it all the time. As a matter of fact, you hear it in the introduction of each episode of this very podcast. But if you ask people what fake news is, you'd likely get a wide variety of answers. So what defines fake news and what does it mean for journalism, journalists and news consumers? To delve into this topic, we welcome Steve Call, Dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He is also a staff writer for The New Yorker and the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan and Bin Laden from the Soviet Invasion to September 10th, 2001. And his latest book is Director at S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Dean Call, thank you so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, first, let's start with the definition of fake news. For you, what does that term encompass? Well, I think these days it primarily refers to two very different uh, things. One uh, is a meaning that the president has popularized by uh, using the phrase so often, and he, he talks uh, quite openly about his pride in having popularized the phrase. But when he uses it, um, he's really talking about professional journalism that he objects to, uh, he finds uh, slanted or inaccurate. Uh, journalism he doesn't like. Um, but the phrase also meaningfully these days applies to truly fake, invented, made-up stories that circulate on social media. And the origins of that fake news um, are diverse. There's sometimes uh, headlines that are created for commercial purposes by offshore factories just trying to automatically send sensational headlines across Facebook or other platforms in order to generate advertising revenue. Uh, we know that from the indictment of the Mueller investigation that uh, the Russian state was involved in manufacturing uh, fake news. And, and what's so interesting about the fake news on social media is that it's often deliberately uh, created and designed to look like trusted brands, but with just slight variations. And then uh, the stories are wholly invented. Now, in between, you know, there is sensational news or ideological news that people might argue about the extent to which it's factually grounded. Um, but those are the two big categories that I think of today. And certainly a lot of this has sown some distrust of 
those, I guess, what you would consider more legitimate news organizations. And I guess what I'm interested in hearing your opinion on is, is how do we kind of get to this point where the, the mistrust of journalism and journalists seems to be much greater, even in those sources that have traditionally been considered bastions of quality journalism and, and now sometimes are, are labeled, depending on who you're talking to, as fake news? Yeah, I think there are several reasons. Uh, first, the trust issue reflects broader polarization in our country. So uh, those who identify as Democrats uh, generally do trust uh, establishment brands, uh, most of them. Those who identify as Republicans generally do not. And those who identify as independents are someplace in between. So there's a kind of cause and effect uh, issue around the broader subject of polarization in the country. Uh, I think the second important factor, and it's particular to media, and it's, it, it goes um, to changes in the industry that have occurred uh, over the last 20 years, is that there has been a profound fragmenting uh, of the media, and the business models have changed as the old newspaper era of the post-war period has yielded to the digital era. And one of the consequences of the rise of uh, digital publishing strategies and social media and 500-channel cable television has been that editorial um, leaders and business strategists in media have increasingly emphasized emotional engagement with their audiences as opposed to broad, nonpartisan strategies of publishing and broadcasting that prevailed, say, in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, you know, when I came to the Washington Post in 1985, the newspaper strategy was to be welcome at as many breakfast tables in the Washington area as possible. And the reason was that the newspaper's business depended on advertising, and the advertising the advertisers wanted as many households as possible to buy their discounted socks or their, their automobiles. That era of uh, trying to be all things to all people was also present in broadcasting because the major news networks operated under license to the Federal Communications Commission, which had then something called the Fairness Doctrine right. that required them to broadcast in the public interest. None of that prevails today. So the New York Times, for example, uh, to, to take a um, established uh, name, it no longer gets its revenue from most of its revenue from advertising. More than half of its revenue comes from subscriptions. And the, the strategy of subscription is a strategy of emotional engagement with a certain kind of demographic audience. The same thing is true of Fox News. On cable television, Fox News' uh, advertising appeal is very limited because its audience is quite um, old. But its um, business is very, very powerful because the viewers it does have are very engaged with, with Fox, and no cable provider would dare pull Fox News off the air because of the powerful feelings that the Fox-aligned audience has about the network. So these are business and structural changes that have reinforced the broader polarization that we see in the country, and I think they explain some of the problems of, of trust and the lack of a center in the way we look at our media today. Is it fair to say that this, this business model that you're talking about is, has almost allowed fake news to you know, hide in plain sight? Well, I think the fake news, the manufactured lies that, that pass uh, under news-looking headlines, the rise of that problem, I think, arises a little bit from something else, although it's, 
it's influenced by this uh, emotional polarization and, and political polarization. And that is, um, fake news is really a product of social media, in my judgment. It is um, the product of the rise of Facebook and YouTube as the primary distribution channels for many, many news organizations. One of the structural changes, besides fragmentation that's occurred in the last uh, 10 or 10 years, really 10 years, is that broadcasters and newspaper publishers and magazine publishers have lost control of their own distribution. You really can't reach the audiences you need to reach today unless you use social media and you let Facebook decide who gets to share and see your news stories. Now, there, there are multiple platforms. They're all sort of quasi-monopolies. Facebook, YouTube, Apple News is a significant one. There's new entrants like Snap that come and go, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. YouTube, of course, is owned by Google. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, at the end of a newsroom's assembly line today, you have people who are employed to basically reformat the news story so that it can be handed off to all these platforms and distributed. Once the news goes on to these platforms, of course, publishers have no way to protect the integrity of the environment that their headlines are coursing through. And what happens is that these offshore and ideological manufacturers of invented headlines pump the same kind of content into, the, into these social media platforms. And, and so you have a mixing of authentic and inauthentic news, and the platforms see themselves as neutral. That's their whole business model. They have uh, resisted the allegation that they're in fact publishers, that they're in fact media companies. Uh, and of course, Facebook famously, until the congressional hearings last autumn, uh, didn't even understand how much Russian-originated content had been coursing across its platforms during, during the 2016 election. They didn't even report to the public or to Congress the very large scale of that activity until the autumn of 2017, um, so almost a year after the election. And it's sort of shocking that something like that could have happened without Facebook even knowing about it. So um, this is a big problem of the influence of social media. I would say one last thing. Mm -hmm. American people are not stupid. They know this is going on. And when you look at some of the trust um, surveys, and, you know, surveying is an imperfect but at least directionally accurate way to measure uh, these kinds of things, and trust itself is a funny word to try to measure scientifically. But anyway, with those caveats, one thing you see is that the number of Americans who say that they trust news they see on social media or Facebook has declined quite significantly in just the last six months for, for all of these reasons. So having said that, you know, how much more of a role should uh, these social media platforms take in, in policing fake news on, on their platforms? Well, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think a number of us have been very critical of the social media companies for not acknowledging their responsibility and for not even being aware of uh, the um, malicious activity that they host. Um, but it's kind of a watch-what-you-wish-for problem, because if you ask Facebook to start censoring speech or news uh, on the basis of, you know, some uh, idea of, uh, quality or trust or fact-based reporting, you're, you're, I think, inviting a kind of censorship that is not sustainable or desirable. I, I think uh, the social media companies could do much more affirmatively to promote 
uh, reporting-based professional journalism of all kinds of origins, not, not just the New York Times, but also Fox News and also the Weekly Standard and the National Review, and other newsrooms that have long-established traditions, including of opinion journalism, of actually caring about what the facts are, employing professional journalists who do reporting, um, and to, to recognize that part of the reason that journalism is so disrupted in the country is because of the monopoly power of these uh, social media companies that have now uh, acquired something like 80% of the entire digital advertising market in just 10 or 20 years. So they have a responsibility. They are a public square. They should do more to uh, support a healthy public square, but we don't want them to be our censors either. Um, they're not covered by the First Amendment because the First Amendment applies to the government. Uh, so in some ways, this is um, unless we were prepared to regulate the way we did with the broadcast networks during the heyday of television, mm -hmm. over-the-air television, between, say, the end of the Second World War and uh, the birth of cable in the 1980s. You know, in, that, in that time, our government, both major political parties, supported regulation of this rare public square that was represented by the broadcast um, spectrum and the several networks that, uh, that accessed it. Uh, today, uh, in Europe, you see uh, virtually all of the uh, European Union countries and even the UK moving very strongly to regulate social media for the same reasons we regulated broadcasters in the 1960s. But in this country, there's no um, appetite yet for that kind of regulation of Facebook and Google. And so I think we're really looking at a kind of self-regulation that is going to be very problematical. I'm not, I'm not optimistic that these companies are going to address this problem in a significant way over the next few years. Is part of that lack of appetite, you know, kind of a fear that, that you'd be opening the, the door to, to kind of greater censorship kind of beyond just the social media piece of it and the social media platforms that it would be kind of opening a, a crack in a door that, that people don't want to open? I mean, we are a First Amendment country, and uh, so there are constitutional questions about what the government can really do to regulate speech. There's also a political environment that is uh, strongly anti-regulatory, and even when the Democratic Party was in power during the Obama years, and even when it had uh, most of Congress or all of Congress for a couple of years, the Obama administration never really pushed a strong regulatory agenda in Silicon Valley. The Silicon Valleys had supported the Obama administration, uh, the companies and the leaders of those companies that would have donated heavily to the Democratic Party, and they w were able um, to avoid regulation and um, uh, antitrust action uh, as part of their uh, part of their connections to that uh, party's kind of outlook on technological innovation. So the Obama administration was restrained uh, by because it said we don't want to stifle innovation. Um, on the on the right, when the Republicans are in power, um, they're pushing a First Amendment um, notion uh, that's uh, very much a part of their kind of libertarian approach to regulation. So you don't really have the politics of regulation at the moment in this country. In Europe, it's different because there's a different tradition about privacy. Mm. And it's really been uh, the defense of privacy that has been driving, as well as uh, antitrust, that's really been driving the European response. But um, the Europeans have been successful at 
reducing, if not eliminating, um, external interference at election time on these platforms. Uh, in, in France, there was a lot of anxiety about how the same kinds of patterns that had affected the Brexit vote in Britain and our mm -hmm. 2016 election might be repeated in France's election. Germ Germany was also anxious that there could be interference in its recent election, and they used regulation really to prevent it. Um, now there are um, there's a there's a new regulation uh, against hate speech in Europe that requires the companies to much more carefully monitor what happens on their platforms uh, than they do in the United States. Now the European definition of hate speech would never stand here under the First Amendment, but um, uh, I would end by saying just because we don't have the politics of, of any kind of response to this available to us as a country right now, and even though we rightly celebrate our First Amendment traditions, we, you can look back to very recent eras of our politics um, where some kind of public interest regulation, some kind of requirement of the companies that they, that they uh, carry out their business activities with the public interest in mind, is not a radical departure, and it's consistent. It has been consistent with the First Amendment. Uh, so it's not all or nothing. Uh, and I think the more these problems persist at places like Facebook and YouTube, um, the more the public will demand some kind of response um, to prevent our public square from becoming so deeply polluted the way it is, I think, at the moment. You mentioned earlier that the public is getting a bit more skeptical of what they're, they're seeing uh, online and on these platforms. What should news consumers do to vet what they see and read and, and maybe filter out the fake news on their own rather than wait for it to be done for them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, it's hard uh, as a technical matter to identify the most insidious manufactured truly fake news because, as I say, I mean, it's quite subtle. We have a research center here that that sometimes shows presentations that just make your jaw drop about you know, how someone will take something like Fox News and just replicate the logo, uh, but just drop you know, just slightly different fonts into it in some way so that uh, because they're offshore, they can't get it exactly right. And then under that brand, they'll put in just outrageous headlines and crazy uh, you know, made-up stories. And I think at first glance, it can be difficult if you're reading news on uh, a shared platform to distinguish between the brand you want to read and something that is imitating that brand. However, um, there are ways around that, which is basically to make sure that the news you are relying on, you're reading from the publisher's own website rather than from shared um, kind of platforms. Uh, if you want to read Fox News, go to Fox News' site and see what they are publishing there, because that's also happening in parallel with the distribution of news on social media. I think the best way to consume news has always been to have more than one source that you rely on and, and to try to read the other side's uh, view of a news cycle, too. Uh, if, you, if you have an ideology that you um, bring to your reading of the news or political convictions, that's fine, but read more than one source on your side of the line, and then also read a couple sources on the other side and just see what see what the differences are. Because the best way to be literate about the news is to have diverse sources that are authentic. So you have to go directly to their sites. Um, you may have to subscribe if you really want uh, access to quality news. Increasingly, 
publishers are asking uh, for subscriptions, and that is going to, I think, be a big part of the future of quality journalism, is that people are going to have to decide what they're willing to pay for. Uh, the price points of entry now, if, if you're not buying the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, are not so high. Uh, so it is affordable, but um, you have to decide what you're willing to pay for. I'm curious what role you feel journalists have in, in combating fake news. Well, I think journalists these days, this is a big theme around here at our school. Um, for one thing, we need to do reporting on all of this, what's going on. I mean, what I've tried to describe to you um, I know primarily because colleagues at this school and journalists who specialize in investigative reporting have made this a beat. And it, it requires um, certain kinds of journalistic reporting skills that um, involve computation, being able to analyze algorithms, being able to work in this environment that is a technical environment. So there's a one thing that's rising in journalism education for this reason is more interdisciplinary teaching of computational methods, uh, computer coding, and journalistic practice. Now, there are practitioners in this area who are really breaking a lot of important stories about fake news and educating the public about the very things we've been discussing. There's a guy at Craig Silverman, a guy named Craig Silverman, who's at BuzzFeed, who is a, um, you know, one of the leading reporters in this area. And I was just reading a story by him yesterday about a particularly pernicious um, a site that had been claiming um, to have sourcing inside the FBI uh, and delivering all these wild stories about conspiracies that the FBI was involved in that no other news outlet um, was, was reporting or confirming but because this site claimed to have all these anonymous FBI sort stories, they sounded like journalism, even though there was really no, even other extreme uh, websites didn't replicate these stories, but they had made an impact. And he, and he did investigative reporting and he exposed who the guy was. Uh, just an absolutely fascinating story, a guy who'd had problems with the FBI, had been arrested, uh, and uh, anyway, really interesting story. So the first thing journalists can do is do journalism. Um, and I think the second thing is that uh, though they lack leverage over the social media companies, um, as we were talking about before, it's in the interests of news publishers of all kinds to figure out how to change the balance of power that exists now between uh, themselves and the social media platforms. And, um, you know, there are limits on what uh, say, newspaper publishers can do as a group because of the antitrust laws. And it's ironic that they're prevented from bargaining collectively uh, by the same antitrust laws that don't seem to have constrained the incredible rise to <laughs> monopoly power of, of the Silicon Valley platforms. Given all these things that we've discussed so far, should people be worried about the future of the free press in America? No, I don't think so. You know, I think we're going through, uh, I think the First Amendment is strong. Um, there, you know, despite President Trump's populist uh, strategy of attacking the professional press, which I think is dangerous and bad for the country and bad for the First Amendment, nonetheless, um, he's not the first populist uh, we've ever had, and he's certainly not the first president to attack the press. Um, I think if you look at the guarantees of a free press that our country has relied on, um, 
under the First Amendment, uh, those that First Amendment tradition is one of the few areas on a polarized Supreme Court where there is strong agreement um, among the justices appointed by, by both Republican and Democratic presidents. So I think that the pillars of the of First Amendment jurisprudence that we rely on as journalists, such as the Sullivan libel standard, which is one of the most progressive in the world, probably the most progressive in the world, um, and the uh, prohibition, uh, except in the most extreme circumstances, of enjoining someone from publishing before they do, that was established in the Pentagon Papers. I mean, those right. kinds of standards, I, I feel, are safe. Um, this hostile atmosphere and the polarization can erode press freedoms in other ways. First of all, you see this terrible trolling and, and even offline threats against journalists. Mm -hmm. uh, in my experience as an international reporter, when you have an environment where leaders are inciting threats against any group, violence usually follows. Um, and I think there's a lot of concern in the profession now about the atmosphere and where it's going. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, this uh, polarization and, and kind of heated rhetoric may eventually undermine some of the protections that journalists enjoy under state law. Uh, there are 46 out of 50 states that have different kinds of so-called shield laws that offer a qualified privilege to journalists to protect sources um, in court. And, you know, if the political atmosphere continues in this direction, I would imagine, especially in, in some states, those protections may be undermined. Um, there's a, you know, we had been making progress as a country on Freedom of Information Act, uh, f uh, free records laws, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you see some of that under challenge, although, you know, it's interesting, one of the best freedom of records laws in the country is in Texas, and, you know, on, there's a lot of, a lot of support on the right for transparency about government, um, and, and so, you know, we, we have those issues to work through. Uh, if you really step back, you know, the the idea of uh, the First Amendment and what journalism uh, was during the 18th century, during the Revolution, and mm -hmm. during you know almost all of the 19th century looked a lot more like what we've got today. I mean, it was polarized. It was most newspapers were associated with a political party. They were um, they were not. Uh, they had diverse approaches to evidence and facts. It's some. <laughs> played it straight. Others uh, made things up. And uh, it was a chaotic environment and, and sometimes quite a violent one. Um, I uh, and a lot of the readers um, that are listening to your podcast, we came of age in a different era when there was a vision of journalism as um, a profession, uh, as, as something that was responsible uh, to its audience and that would follow a kind of scientific method, um, that it would be fair, uh, that it would be inclusive of whatever evidence was really relevant to understanding an important public subject, and that it would contribute to an educated citizenry about matters of public policy so that they could make informed decisions at election time. That vision is a 20th century vision. It's now under pressure uh, from the fragmentation that we've discussed. But there are a lot of journalists um, and a lot of readers who want to um, think of uh, journalism that way still, because that's that's what citizens need. They they need um, some kind of reliable sense of the decisions that are being made in their name by their elected representatives, and and about the social and 
and economic forces that are that are challenging their lives, their families. So I, I still feel, uh, you know, we are students show up here. The school, Columbia Journalism School, was founded by Joseph Pulitzer more than 100 years ago on the basis of a vision of professional reporting, nonpartisan scientific reporting about facts. Um, and it was quite a foresightful vision that Pulitzer had. Uh, and we always tell the students when they turn up this time of year, you know, this school and its vision of professional journalism was founded before radio. We've been through lots of technological disruptions, but the idea of the journalist's role in an open society and what it is we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it, what ethical journalism is, it has endured across all kinds of disruptions and all kinds of political weather, and I think that will be true for the next century as well. And we'd like to end this podcast by asking each of our guests, where do you get your news, and, and what are your favorite news sources? I try to follow my own advice. I mean, I, I'm a creature of the Washington Post. I spent 20 years there as a reporter and senior editor and foreign correspondent, and, and I grew up in Washington, D.C., and so I follow the sports teams down there, and I'm interested in local politics. So I subscribe digitally to the Post, and that's on my home screen. I like to read the BBC, and I watch the BBC World News uh, in the evenings because I'm, I was lived abroad and very interested in international news. And I find the BBC's perspective on uh, international events much uh, richer and fuller. They'll, they'll cover a lot more stories than mm -hmm. you'd see on the nightly news here. Um, so that's part of my habit. Um, I listen to the broadcast, the five-minute top-of-the-hour NPR broadcast on my phone every morning when I, just to hear what is in the headlines today. And I, um, I don't drive as much as I used to, but I used to listen to NPR, which is, by the way, uh, all things considered and morning edition have, are the largest broadcast audiences in the United States today, larger than the network news. Um, and then I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Financial Times, um, and uh, the Washington Post, those four papers. Uh, so I, I read those four papers, and then I um, watch the BBC and listen a little bit to NPR News. All right, Steve Call, Dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and staff writer for New York. We thank you so much for joining us on this edition Thanks of the Matter of Facts podcast. And a note that Steve Call will be in Wilmington this fall. He'll be offering the 2018 Delaware Humanities Joseph P. Del Tufo Annual Lecture, Journalism in the Era of Fake News, on October 18th. That's at Studio One at the Grand in Wilmington. You can find more information about that lecture at the Delaware Humanities website, dehumanities.org. Thanks for being with us. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.